Hi, I'm Josh. I'm a student here at Buffalo. Um, the reading is from 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, 1 to 12. Um, it's found on page 1195 of the Church Bibles. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 1, 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us... Sorry, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I, know, because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Thank you so much, Josh. Good morning, everybody. Please keep that passage open in front of you, and will you please uh, join me as we pray and ask that God will speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your living word, and we pray, Lord, that you will please uh, breathe out that word afresh into our hearts today. Teach us your ways, we pray. Reveal to us the Lord Jesus, and help us to respond in faith, and obedience, and repentance, and with joy. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen. According to former Google engineer Ray Kurzweil, human beings will achieve immortality in, can you believe it, less than eight years. This is according to an article published back in March in the Daily Mail, so it must be true. Immortality will be enabled, apparently, by age-reversing nanobots tiny robots that will repair damaged cells and tissues that deteriorate as our bodies age, thereby making us immune to terminal illnesses. And we're urged to take this former Google engineer very seriously because apparently 86% of his 147 previous predictions have come true. So for example, in 1990, he predicted that the world's best chess player would lose to a computer by the year 2000. And in 1997, IBM supercomputer Deep Blue beats Gary Kasparov. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I'm sure you won't be surprised that I know very little about nanotechnology. But here's a little prediction of my own. I predict that Ray Kurzweil's prediction that human beings will achieve immortality by March 2031 will not come true. You may be surprised, though, by the reason for my confidence. It is simply because immortality has already been achieved by a human being. 
Look with me, please, at verse 10 of that reading that we just had. Chapter 1, middle of verse 10, Christ Jesus has destroyed death, past tense, and has brought, past tense again, life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Wonderfully, immortality is already here. Brought to light through the good news about Jesus. Jesus, who was unjustly crucified, but on the third day was raised to an indestructible life. So immortality is freely available today to anyone here or engaging online who will trust in the crucified and risen Jesus. And you notice that this promise of life is very much on Paul's mind as he writes this letter to Timothy, a younger minister, an overseer in the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Paul describes himself, you notice, verse 1, as an apostle. Uh, That word simply means an envoy or a messenger. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, so divinely appointed, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, one reason immortality is clearly on Paul's heart as he writes is because he himself is close to death. This is widely recognized to be Paul's final letter, his famous last words, if you like, to Timothy and to the church. Over in chapter 4, verse 6, it's like Paul is waiting in the departure lounge of life and his flight number has just started flashing on the board, go to gate. The time for my departure is near, he writes. So is he anxious about his imminent death? No. Chapter 4, verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Wouldn't you like confidence like that in death? Assurance of immortality, even as you navigate through life and then finally depart. Well, the good news of Jesus has switched on the floodlights over death and promised life and immortality, brought them to light. Beginning now, it's just according to what Jesus promised, John 10 verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Very different, isn't it? It's this idea of Christianity is all about following the harsh rules of a severe God who's extremely difficult to please. So if God wants to deny us life and enjoyment, he doesn't. Quite the opposite. And this letter is really all about this great and glorious gospel that promises life to the full. Before Paul departs, he wants to ensure that Timothy and all the believers in Ephesus and all who follow in their footsteps today, that we carefully guard and proclaim this glorious gospel. And that rather like in a four-by-four relay race, we carefully pass the baton on to the next generation, not distorting the gospel, not watering it down. No, chapter 1, verse 13, we're to keep the pattern of sound, that is healthy teaching, because it is literally a matter of life and death. And what we're going to learn in this letter, among other things, is what effective gospel ministry looks like, and indeed what an effective gospel minister looks like. But this letter is not just for Chris Webb and for me and for others who've been set aside and are paid as gospel ministers. No, the word minister in its simplest simply means to serve. And that is something that every follower of Jesus is called to do. We're called to serve others. And that's why I've chosen this series title, Useful to the Master. It comes from chapter 2, verse 21, where Paul speaks about Christians as instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now, if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, I can confidently say 
that that is God's will for your life. Whatever may be going on in your life right now, whether good times or tough times or a mixture of the two, please be assured that behind the scenes, your loving Father in heaven is at work molding you into an instrument for special purposes, making you holy, that is, set apart from sin to God. He's shaping you to become more and more useful in his service and prepared to do any good work. That is, any good work that will help to advance this glorious gospel that brings life and immortality to light. Last week, we had two points. I'm being especially kind to you today because there really is only one point, admittedly with three sub-points. Three implications and applications of this one big idea that Jesus promises life and immortality. That's the big point. And the first implication of that truth from verses 1 to 5 Be thankful and pray for those with sincere, living faith. Be thankful and pray for those with sincere, living faith. Notice in verse 2, Paul addresses his letter to Timothy, my dear son. That could maybe be better translated, my dearly loved child. It's a very affectionate term. Timothy is not the apostle's biological son, but presumably Paul was instrumental in his coming to faith in Jesus. So he sees himself as a kind of spiritual father figure to Timothy, as he does with many of those converted through his ministry. And see how thankful Paul is as he brings Timothy to mind and recounts how often he prays for him. I thank God, verse 3, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with with joy. Uh, We were thinking last week about devoting ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Well, here is a great example of that. Paul prays night and day, constantly. Uh, Notice he's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith, verse 5. Sincere as in genuine, without pretense, without hypocrisy. And importantly, Paul describes it as a living faith too. This is not just some dry commitment to a list of truths about God. It's not simply signing up to a statement of faith. No, Paul says it first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. See, true faith in Jesus is faith that is alive, faith that impacts the way that I speak and behave and think, faith that leads to me serving other people too building up the body with the gift or gifts that God has entrusted to me. There is no such thing as a believer who isn't serving others. Well, if you're a believer already, I hope you often thank God for those that you know with sincere faith, especially those who are instrumental in bringing life and immortality to light in your life by sharing the gospel with you, whether parents, grandparents, another family member, colleague, a friend, a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. I think of Alan and Brenda who first shared the good news with me as a rebellious 16-year-old, completely addicted to the world and all its pleasures. Think of John and Mary, John now with the Lord, uh, his, his wife Mary here a couple of weeks ago at the commissioning service, but they first led me to Christ. If you find yourself stuck sometimes and you're just not sure what to thank God for, or if maybe life is just really hard right now and you need some encouragement, well, why not look back? Even in this very moment, why not look back and recall those who in the kindness and goodness of God were key people in leading you to faith in Jesus? And if they're still with us, why not pray for that their sincere faith will continue to live and impact many other people? Or give thanks for other Christians you know, maybe in this fellowship, 
whose sincere faith often brings you great joy. Let's be a thankful church. And just a word to those of you who are younger, perhaps still at home with Christian parents, but maybe not yet a faith of your own. Please thank God for your Christian upbringing. It is a privilege. Even if it is inevitably imperfect, and yes, your Christian parents won't always get it right, but thank God for a Christian upbringing that will most likely preserve you from some of the excesses of this dark world. So be thankful and pray for those with sincere living faith. Secondly, verses 6 to 7, be sure to fan into flame the gift of God in you. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, Paul doesn't specify the precise nature of this gift, uh, which is in Timothy. So the very best we can do is indulge in a bit of sanctified speculation, uh, which is fine, as long as we accept that because the Bible itself doesn't tell us, we can't be absolutely sure. Now, Paul has referred to this gift before in his first letter to Timothy. You just flip back, chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Timothy. You'll see there he writes, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And with that in mind, I think we're on safe ground in thinking that this is a gift relating to Timothy's ministry as an elder or a pastor imparted to him perhaps through a prophetic word given at his ordination or his commissioning. So perhaps a gift of leadership or of preaching and teaching. Whatever the exact nature of the gift, and let's be sure that if we needed to know, the Bible would make it plain, but whatever the nature, Paul recognizes a danger that Timothy might neglect it. And of course, if it is neglected, then rather like a log fire left unattended and no more wood added to it, well, eventually it will burn out, won't it? And Paul really does not want that to happen. And so he reminds Timothy to fan the gift into flame, literally to rekindle it. Give the fire more oxygen, Timothy, so that it burns more fiercely. 4 verse 7, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now I have to say, I think young Timothy gets a bit of a bad press. He's gained something of an undeserved reputation because preachers latch on to this word timid in verse 7 and of course it begins with a letter T. So it makes for great alliteration. Timid Timothy. Remember back in verse 4, Paul recalls Timothy's tears. Well, that's pure gold for a preacher, isn't it? Now we have tearful timid Timothy. Go back to the first letter, chapter 5, verse 23. He urges young Timothy to stop drinking only water And use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What if you're a preacher? This is the gift that keeps on giving. Now we have tearful, timid, tummy bug Timothy. Go back further and you'll see that actually Paul says you're not to, don't let those look down on you because you're young. Earlier on in chapter four. Well, we've hit the jackpot, haven't we? Timid, tearful, tummy bug, teenage Timothy. Four points, all beginning with T. And I think the danger is, you see, that we end up building a picture of a very weak young man, quiet as a mouse, always in need of assurance and affirmation, always crying, always taking Gaviscon for his tummy troubles. And we might think, oh dear, poor Timothy. He's clearly way out of his depth, isn't he, in Ephesus? No, he's just not up to the job. No surprise, really, that Paul has to urge this terrified, reluctant minister to fan into flame the gift of God. 
But I want to challenge that characterization of Timothy. I have heard preachers preach in that way. I want to suggest another T this morning. Typical Timothy. Typical Timothy. Because gospel ministry is hard work. During my now 31 years as a Christian, I've come to realize that those who are most useful to the master, most fruitful and effective in ministry, they tend to be those who are most aware of their weaknesses and their frailties. Those who face great troubles or great sickness. Those who've shed many tears. Tears for those who oppose the gospel, even in the church. Tears for God's wandering sheep. Tears for the lost. Tears for their own sin and failings. Even the author of this letter, Timothy's experienced mentor and spiritual father, he writes to believers in Corinth, the difficult church to lead, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And so for anyone here this morning who feels a little bit like Timothy, in whatever area the Lord has called you to serve him, whether it's in an upfront leadership role or it's a more behind-the-scenes hidden background role, for any who feel inadequate for the task or reluctant, timid, weak, tearful, struggling with your health, please be encouraged this morning because God delights to use weak and frail people in his service. It has always been the way. And you know, wonderfully, God doesn't call us or want us even to serve in our own strength. No, his power is made perfect in weakness. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. My brother, my sister... Whatever particular gift or gifts the Lord has entrusted to you to help advance this wonderful gospel that brings life and immortality to life, he doesn't simply give you the gift and say, right, off you go, get on with it then. No, he's also given you his spirit to empower you. The Holy Spirit who lives permanently within every single believer. That's the power supply that makes the gift function. He can take your natural timidity and enable you to serve with supernatural Holy Spirit boldness. He can take your struggle to love some of those that you serve or serve alongside because they irritate you or infuriate you and enable you to love them with supernatural love. He can take your flakiness or your lack of self-control and enable you to serve with supernatural self-discipline. And so we're to fan our God-given gift or gifts into flame by plugging in to the power supply of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't think there's a single day since I've been appointed to this role when I've not prayed something along the lines of, Lord, please give me your Holy Spirit today. Give me fresh power and strength for this enjoyable but challenging role. Now, I don't pray that because I don't have the Holy Spirit. Every genuine believer has the whole of the Holy Spirit living within them. But Jesus teaches us as his followers. Luke 11, verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you lack strength or courage to serve, ask him for the Holy Spirit daily, maybe hourly. Be thankful and pray for those with sincere living faith, be sure to fan into flame the gift of God in you. And finally, verses 8 to 12, be willing to suffer for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 8, so or therefore, that is because the Holy Spirit gives us power, love and self-discipline, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power 
of God. There is a rather tragic thread that runs through this letter to Timothy, as as we'll see as it unfolds. It's the thread of gospel desertion and people wandering from the truth. People who become ashamed of this testimony about Jesus and his suffering on the cross, which brings life and immortality. Or ashamed of Paul, his apostle, who follows in the footsteps of Jesus and suffers for the gospel. There are others who distort and twist God's word. So next week in chapter 1, verse 15, we'll meet Phygelus and Hermogenes, who not only have horrible names to pronounce, but also a horrible reputation for deserting Paul in his hour of need. In chapter 2, verse 17, we'll meet Hymenaeus and Philetus, who've departed from the truth and whose teaching is spreading like gangrene. What an ugly picture of how dodgy doctrine infects the body of Christ. Then in chapter 4, verse 10, we'll meet Demas, who, because he loved this world, has deserted Paul. And then there's Alexander the metal worker, who does Paul a great deal of harm by strongly opposing his message. Paul sums up the tragedy and loneliness of it all in chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. I think we can almost hear the anguish in Paul's words here as he appeals to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. Please don't go the same way, Timothy. Not you of all people. Don't you desert. Please do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice again, this is something neither Timothy nor we can do in our own strength. When the Lord Jesus calls me to pay a price for being his follower or for sticking by a fellow believer in trouble, when it gets uncomfortable to be a Christian at work or at home or at school, college, university, when I face ridicule for my faith, false accusation, alienation, persecution, whatever it may be, I can only endure such things by the power of God. And indeed, that will be Paul's testimony towards the end of the letter. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And brothers and sisters, he will give you strength too for whatever he calls you to do. Verse 9 onwards, we get a very helpful explanation of the gospel and why it is worth suffering for. First notice, we get a summary of what a Christian is and how I become one. And notice that salvation, coming to faith, is all God's initiative and God's activity. I bring nothing to the table apart from my own sin and failure. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Listen to this, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace, that word means undeserved kindness and favor. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now we could do a whole series unpacking the riches of verse 9. But I think the main point is clear. No one becomes a Christian by trying to be a good person. In fact, there is absolutely nothing that you or I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. Please listen again, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Or let me perhaps turn it around so that we can see it from a different angle. It doesn't matter who you are this morning or what you've done in your life. You may have committed the most terrible of crimes You may have lived a selfish or immoral life, hurt countless people. You may have a hidden life that if it came to light would destroy you and cause unimaginable damage to friends and family. But there is nothing that you have ever done that cannot be forgiven by the God of all grace. 
There is nothing that can frustrate God's own purpose if he is determined to save you and call you to a holy life. Or at the other end of the spectrum, you may have lived the most wonderful, kind, generous life. Oh, you know you're not perfect, of course, but you've tried your best to live a good life, to keep the Ten Commandments. You do to others as you'd have them do to you. You've, you've given away money, you've helped the poor, you've done countless good deeds. But there is nothing that you can do to win God's favor. He is perfect. And if you want to be in his good books, you need to be perfect too, without fault. In short, you need to be saved. You need to receive God's favor. Because there has only ever been one perfect man who has ever lived, the man Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And it is only those who put their trust in him who are saved. Now, someone may well ask, well, well how do I know if it is God's purpose to save me? That he purposed that before the beginning of time. Well, I'm going to allow Jesus to answer that in his own words. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So if you come to Jesus, even this morning, and put your trust in him, you can be confident that God has saved you by his own purpose and grace. Because Jesus promises to never drive away anyone who comes to him. Of this gospel writes Paul, verse 11, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Now why is Paul suffering? Well, because he's proclaiming this gospel that brings life and immortality to light. And there is an enemy of God called Satan who is determined to do everything possible to ensure that life and immortality do not come to light. He wants to keep people in the dark, enslaved to sin, lies, and death. He lied right at the very beginning. You will not surely die. And he continues to lie and deceive people today. Whether through the when you die, you die lie, or the don't worry, God is, ever, ever, is loving so everyone will get to heaven lie, or whether through the all roads lead to God lie. There are many others too. So how about you? And how about me? Are we going to be ashamed of our amazing Savior, Jesus, who promises abundant life and immortality? Is suffering for the gospel really a cause for shame? Or am I willing to pay a price for believing it, proclaiming it, living it out, standing by those persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Paul is in the departure lounge. Death is imminent, but he has entrusted his life to Christ Jesus and is convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Can I say to those who are not yet believers and followers of Jesus, well, I just want to ask you a question. To whom or to what are you entrusting your life and your eternal future. I suppose you could take your chances with Ray Kurzweil's prediction, put your confidence in nanobots, assuming, of course, you can hang on to your life until March 2031. None of us can be sure if we'll even wake up tomorrow. Alternatively, you can come to Jesus today and put your confidence in him, in the one who has already brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen.